tough texts tennis. I'm sporty after all, Phil. Very impressed. Um, in the morning in First Corinthians, uh, Phil had a passage on church division this morning. And last week he smiled because he knew I'd got this one about slaves and masters. Uh, and uh, next week, Phil, you've got, well, you haven't got next week, we've got our young people. But you've got wives and husbands coming up, Phil. I, leaving you I am leaving you that one. Tough texts, tennis. He's marking it. <laughs> so, say again. Okay. <laughs> Substitutes brought on. Okay, so. Uh, so, I, I, I kind of have some written in my notes. You'll be glad to know. A few things which I guess are some first principles that I just want to, 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 um, to speak out before we, we launch into this particular section of chapter 2, verse 18, through to the end of, of chapter 2, particularly focusing on what Peter describes as, as slaves and masters. But first, it comes in, the, in this broader passage, which I wanted to read that we read from chapter 2.11, that gets, as I described it, earthy and practical under the broader heading, as I urge you as foreigners and exiles. The what he is describing and what Peter is, uh, is, is driving at, and it's really worth grasping this from the outset, because as I will mention in a moment, some of the specifics of what he begins to teach can and are radical and chattel and make us feel a little bit like we're sitting on a spiky place. It's uncomfortable. The, the broader picture is, as I, I've been uh, kind of just already, already, uh, already emphasizing, is that he has called us, chosen us, adopted us out of existence which knew him not and called us together through Christ into being a new people. That this is the fulfillment and the outworking of all that was set in motion in the Old Testament finds its fulfillment and focus in Jesus Christ. And now because of that, we live in what this, this being the new people of God. We aren't to become Jewish, we to become the new people of God, that we are now called to be a holy priesthood, a royal people. Just as it looked like in Exodus chapter 9, when he, he first called the people, chapter 19, Exodus chapter 19, when he called the people to be his people. And he said, we, and they said, we, in the covenant we'll become a royal priesthood. Not just the Levites, but, but all of them. But now that is who we are. And by virtue, he's saying we aren't citizens of Britain or England or Scotland or the EU or or global kind of United Nations. Though that is part of our identity, we're not losing our roots. But there is something that goes beyond that now, which eclipses that, which is greater than. And that is... We are his. And that where we are sojourning, dwelling, living, passing through at the moment, 
is temporary. It isn't our home. We are called citizens of another place. We are ambassadors, as Paul's language would describe it, of the kingdom of God. That is now our first identity. These are principles. Secondly, as I was preparing this message, I find myself finding it like tough text, tennis. I I found myself in my office reading, thinking, I don't really want to preach this because it's awkward. We don't have slaves. At least I haven't got any. Uh, Some of the children may say they are, but uh, we don't have an established culture of slavery. And more than that, the common word that, that comes up throughout this text is the word submission, submit, comes up again and again to the emperor, to the rulers, to the governors, uh, to human authorities, slaves in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, wives, submit to your husbands, submit. I just need to tell you first and foremost, and this uh, colors my message, that I struggle with this because I don't know about you, but I find it hard to submit. Maybe it's because I'm a man. Maybe it's because I've got a really stubborn streak. Maybe it's because I find my theological home in nonconformity. Maybe it's because I've always been a little bit like, I, I want to know why. And if it doesn't make sense, I'll find my own way. Thank you. Submission. It's all the way through this passage. To me, submission, my first memory of submission, well, two of them, would be eat your greens or you won't leave the table. And being myself, it was like a battle of wills. I don't like this soggy mush that is now gone cold on the plate. I liked the meat, but this cold sprout cabbage mix... I mean, I'm doing my mum a disservice here, but to me as a young lad, it was foul and stank. (laughs) Thank you. And I was forced to submit because I wanted to go and play. And actually, it was a battle of wills. And I ate the vegetables. But I resented the vegetables and my mum. I find submission difficult. I also find submission difficult, the second reason, because I have an older brother. Do you know what it's like to be a younger sibling? I feel like I'm telling tales on my family tonight. Um... My brother and I tend to get on well most of the time now. But as um, he was three and a bit years older than me, uh, we, we didn't fight so much. But he, because he was older and bigger, would often win out on those battle of wills. You know what I mean? If we were having some, like, who wanted the seconds at the dinner table, food clearly matters to me. Uh, or if uh, it was... You know, we're arm wrestling, or there was something going on, a bit of pushing and shoving. 
it was always me who submitted when we got into a bit of a tussle, you know, a bit like wrestling. Submit, go on, give in, submit, as my arm was twisted or uh, my body sort of put into a posture it wasn't really designed to be. And I didn't want to submit, but it hurt if I didn't. And I always kind of understood submission as really a sign of weakness and of being the lesser. I say that because that's how I think I've When I hear the word submit or submission, that's the filter that I'm applying to it. Subconsciously, perhaps, I find it difficult. Uh, The word submit actually comes from Latin. But the Greek word here is a a word called hypostasso. And it's, it's a word that actually means a voluntary attitude of cooperation. It's not a a stronger wins out over the weaker, but rather an assuming of responsibility and a willing carrying of a burden. I wanted to highlight that because when we come to a text like slaves submit to your masters, it jars to me. It feels awkward to me and it, it balks at me as a text because I think, why is Jesus, why is Peter, why is this scripture seeming to run counter counter to everything we seem to understand about the gospel, about being set free, about being liberated, about all of those things. And here suddenly it talks about submission. Understanding the word that it's a voluntary attitude of cooperation, of assuming responsibility, of carrying a burden helps me. But the other aspect of that is, is I find it difficult because I think I'm still stubborn And probably submitting myself to God fully is one of those ongoing daily devotional things that I like to assert my own will and my own rights and my own decision-making, my own volition ahead of my call to worship Jesus. That's a long-winded way of saying I'm still sinful. That my flesh my will, my desires often take precedence. Second principle. Third principle, before we get to the nitty-gritty. I think this is really helpful to understand. Is we have to understand a little bit of what Peter's setting out to do. So I've told you that uh, the first principle, well, uh, I've told you these two, the two already, uh, that pushes buttons, that we're God's elect, a holy people. The third principle, I think, is, is for us to understand the context in which Peter is writing. And by that, I mean, follow the recipe. What? Back to food. The the broad principles he's talked about are saying we are God's people. We are uh, sojourners. We are are aliens in a foreign land. This isn't our natural habitat where we live right now. Yeah, do you agree? We belong as another people. 
And as such, what he begins to tease out, the so what of that headline, finds its definition, finds its logic in following the recipe. If I, for what I'm trying to drive it, if I said, here's an egg, do something with it, I suspect that you would, we would also have all sorts of things produced, wouldn't we, from an egg? Who'd make a boiled egg? Delia wrote a book on it, How to Boil an Egg. It's kind of meant to be simple. I mean, if I gave you an egg, you could make an omelette. One option, you could turn that egg instead of an omelette into a fried egg. Or if you're being really fancy, eggs benedict with a little bit extra. But it would be still following a recipe. Or uh, you could take that egg and make it, separate it, and and some creative people... um, uh, I can't remember who it was I was talking to. He said, their go-to thing is a pavlova. Mm. Take the whites out, whip them up, you know, d- discard the yolks, get the whites. You end up with a bit of sugar, a fantastic thing, don't you? Pavlova. Brenda makes a great pavlova. As does Jackie. As does many. Yeah, souffles over here. Fancy. Or discard the whites, take the yolks, you get a creme brulee. Or in case you were thinking, mix it up differently, you could have mayonnaise, hollandaise, or a sponge cake. What am I going on about? In this submission, in what Peter is teaching, he's saying, we're taking these elements, these things, and we are applying them in a process and applying them in order to demonstrate what it means to live somewhere else. In order, he's saying there's a recipe here. It's not just you take something and and you can apply it in every way and in every circumstance you get the same thing. That there's a specific nature into which he is teaching. And and I've already been trying to to just uh, outline that. That it comes from who we are in him now. It comes from the fact that we are, our first identity is in him. And that we are not uh, just simply uh, citizens of a country with a passport with this particular brand stamped on it of the Great Britain, United Kingdom and Northern Ireland or Great Britain or however it, we describe ourselves or whatever particular passport that you have. That there is something he's driving at from the, from the overarching principles to the specific here and the context of how we submit. You see, I found myself, as I was thinking about submission, thinking are, uh, if we are to submit, as Phil was saying, what happens if we are in a context where The emperor says you cannot worship God. What takes precedence? What happens if you're in North Korea and they say you are forbidden from worshipping Jesus, you have to worship Kim Jong-un? What happens in the context of of husbands and wives? And, And thankfully he doesn't get on to children and parents in this particular bit. We can turn to Paul for that. What happens if one of the spouses is a domestic abuser? And here we see wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. 
Because it seems quite clear. And, and this is where these texts can be distorted. This is where the recipe can go wrong. It's not just taking the submit thing like the egg and then that is it. We have to remember what Paul is seeking to drive at. He is for, following a recipe for a principle of what the outcome is. These aren't rules that are universal and applied in every context and they will come out with the same solution no matter what. That there are exceptions and extenuating circumstances. As Phil rightly told us last week, we are to submit to our authorities until they say we can't follow our higher call and first principles of belonging to him. In the same way, it would be inappropriate to say to wives or to husbands in an abusive position, well, here it says there's no get out. You submit. That isn't what Peter is driving at. In the same way, what would happen if the slaves and masters, if if we've got just an abusive master who is intolerable, is poor Peter actually saying, well, you citizen of heaven, you just sit under that scourging and that whipping and that violence and that injustice and you just submit to it. No ifs, no buts, no maybes. Is this an overarching principle? I think the answer is no, it's not. But it is a guiding principle, but not a universal principle. Do you see the difference? That's why I wanted to tell you some of the principles I'm working with in this message and how it presses some of my buttons. As I've said, submit. We're told to submit to governors and emperors, servants or slaves to their masters, wives to husbands, husbands to wives. And actually, in the end of of the passage in chapter 3, verse 8, actually we're to submit to one another. Finally, all of you being like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble, and so forth. But this is a theme, not just for slaves and masters or wives and husbands, but an attitude that we live with. How do we find our way through it in 21st century life? Is this text backward? Is this text one of those that we just consign to the dusty shelf and say, awkward, too controversial, don't know what to do with it, stay away. No. Because I think at the heart of it are some really, really key features. Firstly, and centrally, it stems from knowing who we are and who he is. In chapter 2, verse 13, submit yourself to the Lord's For the Lord's sake, to every human authority, whether to the emperor, to the supreme authority, or to the governors. NIV isn't the most helpful for us here. The sense, rather than institution, meaning kind of organizations, is actually submit yourselves to every human creature, to every um, kind of person, because we're all made in the image of God. He's not actually saying kind of institutions, 
or kind of structures, but recognizing that actually we're dealing face-to-face, that uh, sometimes we may be dealing with institutions, you know, when we send off for a, a, a benefits or a passport, it's an, like an agency. But actually, when we come to think about it, we are actually dealing with flesh and blood here. That we are to honor and respect everyone. That once we start seeing the emperor as a human being, it changes. He's not just a power over us. He is a person. The queen isn't just the monarch. She is a person. There's a great leveling in scripture. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yet... Christ is the saviour of all. All come to faith through Jesus. No one else, no other way. And as such, once we begin to understand this of who we are in relation to others, even if they have power and authority over us, it lessens how perhaps we see them. doesn't mean we don't honour them. You know, students over here, when you see John Sanderson this week at school, kind of, you don't treat him with disrespect, but he's still... A man, made in the image of God, fallen, yet died for by Jesus Christ. Once we start to orientate our vision and our view of others, it really helps us in this matter of how we act towards them. Someone once went to Mother Teresa and spent time watching what she was doing with the the close to... uh, close to death and the dying and those in extreme poverty and all that that means to body, of decay, of smell, of infection, pain and suffering. And after a couple of days of watching her with compassion in and amidst the odor and the fluids and the sadness, he said... Even if you gave me a million pounds, I couldn't do what you do. And her response was that I couldn't do it for a million pounds either. I do it for Jesus Christ. One of her guiding texts was obviously from Matthew later on when he says, you know, if you are naked, give her a cloak. If I'm thirsty, give me a cup of water to the least of these. That she'd grasped this view that the, the poor and the weak and the suffering and the needy were still made in the image of God and still had an innate worth and dignity as such. And out of that flows, uh, if you're interested, the whole kind of uh, basis of, of human rights and ethics. But understanding who we are relating to, particularly when it comes to slaves and masters, helps us not just to see them as the power broker, but as the person. And they may be redeemed or still lost, but still with innate dignity of understanding how we relate. When we come to this text about the workplace, it's really uh, helpful just to underline for us that, that Peter, as much of the scripture, is saying religion and faith is not just a private and personal matter. This is about our workplace relationships. He's talking about marriage and marital relationships. He's talking about church relationships, that our faith is private and personal, but it extends into the realm of everywhere, of politics and governance as well 
as the family and the workplace. Don't let anyone try to persuade you. Just keep your faith private. Not at all. So in verse 18, slaves in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. Again, the, the, uh, I don't often uh, do this with text because it's, it's not very helpful and it makes it seem like you just need to kind of read Greek to, to uh, kind of understand the text. And the NIV is actually really, really good. But it doesn't, it's always helpful perhaps to read a, a different version. The NIV is great, love it. Um, something like the ESV is also good, a bit harder to read in its flow. But there is something here that the NIV doesn't quite capture. That when it talks about slaves here, it's not using the word that would mean historically be translated as slave. That's the word doulos. And Paul, uh, Peter does use it in the text just before. He says, well, be slaves to God. Here he's using a different word. And it actually is the word oikotene. Aren't you impressed? You can forget that straight away. But it's not a word that would classically mean slave. It's a word that would actually mean, or easiest to translate towards that of servant. So if we read verse 18, servants in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. That may be a little bit more helpful and a little bit more encompassing. Not everyone that Peter was writing to was a slave. It's also worth remembering that slaves in the Roman era in which this text is set weren't like the slavery and the awful institution that was around in the last couple of centuries, particularly when we think about the North American slave trade, where people were entirely owned and without rights and were stuck there for life. In the first century world, slavery was very, very different. There were people who were captured and taken, but actually the Roman culture had quite specific rules about how actually one should treat a slave. That slaves weren't just the the domestic, kind of menial, unskilled laborers, that very often slaves would be the physicians and the managers and the merchants and people of business, as well as those perhaps who were involved in running a household, not just kind of like uh, to uh, uh, the, the kind of Downton Abbey servanted thing, but actually working in, in gardening and all sorts. They would be uh, owned and belonging to the master, but actually given a, an accorded uh, dignity and respect, would often be very educated, some of them, and would be able to, at some point, if they could save enough, they did earn money, would be able to buy their freedom. There was a way out. It's a different cultural understanding to that which we live in. How do we contextualize it? Possibly just to think about workplace relations. If you're an employee, how do you respond to your boss or your board? Servants, employees, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. And he then follows an argument which which describes how we are to go about this that does seem a little bit difficult, but there's some really important things to glean. Not only to those who are good and considerate, 
that's probably, if you've got a good boss, celebrate that. Give thanks and don't be a bad employee. Work hard. It'll go well for you. That's a bit of biblical wisdom. The challenge comes if it's harsh, doesn't it? If you've got an unjust and unfair one, one that is out to get you, that doesn't like you because you're a Christian. Remember, this is actually where we seem to be getting to. He's saying, live your life faithfully. Don't hide yourself away. Remember that you're a stranger in a foreign land. But what happens to those who are bad or harsh? He's logical in verse 19. For it's commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating? For do- I mean, we don't expect beatings in the workplace. Just let me set that straight. For doing wrong and endure it. There's, there's an understanding that if you, if you don't do your job, there's a consequence. I'm not saying bring back beating. But the logic is there. But Peter is saying, if you as a a disciple, a follower of Jesus, God's elect, a holy uh, person, uh, belonging to the royal priesthood, if you are not serving God, you're acting dishonorably or you're being lazy or ineffective or uh, you're undermining in the role that you've been called to, whether that's in employment or actually by virtue of your status. If you are acting badly, it's no surprise that you're going to get called up on it. That's how it goes. But the challenge is saying, if you are doing a good job and you are getting punished, why are you? And it seems to be here, just like he was uh, saying about how we relate to our human authorities, that we are to walk as children of light, we're to, to, to seek to be as conscientious and as diligent as we can to do our best. Why? Because of our love for God, worked out in the context of our gainful duties and employment, or our responsibilities at home, and so forth. To do that well. And at times that will cost you. That Peter is writing to a church under pressure because of its witness. Because people are being singled out because they stand out as believers. Don't stand out because you're a bad employee. Stand out because you're faithful. Stand out because you're different. Because you're fragranced with the characteristics of Jesus. Do a great job. Go the extra mile. Be a bit like those amazing uh, builders who built cathedrals and and someone was kind of looking at all the effort they were putting into the bits that no one would ever see on top of the roof and in the insides of the building that that just the kind of the maintenance people might get to see with detail and uh, and beauty and and said, why are you putting all that effort when no one's ever going to see? And said, well, we're not doing it just for them. We're doing it for him, for God's glory. In other words, the attitude was right. I'm not just working for Bob or Belinda. I'm serving Jesus. However I am working, as a domestic help or as a prime minister, I'm serving my human boss, but also serving a greater one in the midst of it. 
You see, what he's really driving at, and this is really crucial, he draws into this in reference to slaves and masters. He said, think about Jesus. To this you were called, verse 21, because Christ suffered for you, leaving at you an example that you should follow in his steps. It's a bit like the trump card, isn't it, in a theological argument? Look at Jesus. Okay. Ceases a few arguments. It comes down to this. The cross should always characterize us. That, of course, he's talking about we enter in through what what Christ has done on the cross, that he died for as he bore our sins, verse 24, in his own body on the cross. Yes, we enter in, but also the cross is the way for living. To this you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. He's not just the example, he's the saviour. But in being the saviour, he becomes our example to follow. The Christian living is, is the way that through the cross we come to new life and through the cross we live our life. Our life should be Christ-centered and cross-shaped in submission to rulers and masters and husbands and wives and one another. Because the setting and the context and the recipe is our overarching worship of God. You're probably bursting with questions. But what ifs? Well, into that here, a summary of what Peter says. Firstly, in verses 18 to 20, particularly about slaves and masters, servants and masters. Avoid sin. Try and avoid sin. I mean, make that a kind of prayer in the morning. Jesus, lead me not into temptation. Let me avoid sin. However I know that sin to be at work. Whatever the Spirit is is prompting you about in your life, and particularly as you go to work, make it a spiritual place, work. It's not just you leave your devotional life at home and for Sunday. You take him with you. Avoid sin particularly in the workplace. Secondly, do good. Be a good employee. Be a good parent. Be a good boss. Be a good employee. And there will be results. He draws from the model of Jesus for the workplace, that Jesus avoided sin, but sometimes in doing the right thing, it is costly Jesus died upon the cross. But there were results to that too. That some will be convinced as you live a faithful and holy life in the workplace, some will be converted because they'll be convinced by the way you are. It's a great outcome. Some, we're told, will be silenced. Verse 15. Just finding it. For it's God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. That actually by living for Christ actually silences critics because there's no accusation can be brought except false ones. Not only will some be converted, some will be silenced. 
because of the witness and the example you set, but also you will be commended. It's good to hear this. Verse 19, for it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you are receiving a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you enjoy it, this is commendable before God. For the church that Peter wrote to that is scattered, and it's getting tougher, and it is tough for Christians sometimes, not so much in our world, let's not pretend, But it might be tough in a marriage, and it might be tough with a particular teacher who mocks you. I know that's true for some of our students, undermines any conviction of faith. Or the workplace parties and how you live for Christ in the context of kind of other attitudes and habits. It may be, and it's likely, and Timothy is told by Paul that if you follow Jesus, you're going to get persecuted. It happens. Expect it. It's going to come. But know that as you stand for Christ, it is not easy, but you will be commended. Some will see that and be convinced in your witness. Some mockers will be silenced. But above and beyond all those things, the Lord will commend you. Well done, good and faithful servant. You're following the way of Jesus. You've understood that the cross is for you to enter into new life. And you've understood the way of living is following the way of Jesus. Why? Because we don't belong in this world. And this world lives in other ways. Don't be surprised. But now you belong to him. Let's pray. Dear Holy Spirit, 